Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. For more in-depth perspectives and interesting stories, sign up for our daily newsletter at tvo.org daily. While it can sometimes seem as if every Canadian has an opinion about U.S. politics, there are plenty of Americans in Canada who actually get a say in this U.S. presidential race. After last night's shit show between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, we thought we'd gather some expat Americans for their perspectives on this much-anticipated election. And with that, we welcome, in Whitby, Ontario, Morgan Campbell, freelance journalist and a dual citizen. In Thornhill, Ontario, Partha Mohanram, a professor at the University of Toronto and also a dual citizen. And here in the provincial capital on West Queen West, Kevin Bracken. He's the author of What's Different in Canada. And in Wellesley Village, Danielle Stampley, Toronto chapter chair of Democrats Abroad. And it's good to have all four of you on TVO this morning. You know, I don't know that in 15 years of doing this program, I've ever used any profanity on the air. But sometimes you just got to tell it like it is. And that was... Anyway, I said it. Enough. Let's move on. I want to, um, I want to start by just establishing what uh, the four of you, what your relationship is with the United States. Danielle, why don't you start us off? Where are you from originally? Sure. So I'm originally from Missouri, um, a little bit outside of St. Louis. And um, I came here about six years ago uh, because I married a Canadian. And you are, uh, you are or are not a dual citizen? You're not a dual citizen. I'm a permanent resident currently. Permanent resident. Got it. Okay. Kevin Bracken, how about you? Where are you from originally? Sure. I'm from New York originally. I, um, I'm one of those Americans who threatened to move to Canada if George Bush was reelected, and I made good on my promise. And so I've lived here on and off uh, since 2004. I'm an American citizen and a Canadian permanent resident. You know Miss New York? Uh, I mean, I love New York. Uh, who doesn't? But uh, sometimes living there is like a daily punch in the face. I think uh, other New Yorkers might agree with me. So I love I love waking up in uh, in Toronto every day. Okay, good enough. Partha, how about you? So uh, I'm originally from India. So I moved to the U.S. for my uh, uh, PhD, and I lived in the U.S. for 18 years. So I went through the normal process. I was a student, then I got an H-1B visa, then I got a green card, and I became a U.S. citizen. And as th- things turned out. In 2010, purely for professional reasons, I moved to Toronto, uh, to the University of Toronto. So uh, I can't say I fled uh, to Canada anticipating Trump, but that's the way things have actually worked out. And so since uh, I've been here for the past 10 years, we've become permanent residents. And so my entire family right now are uh, me, my wife and our son are all dual U.S. Canadian citizens. Do you have three passports, though? No, India, unfortunately, doesn't allow you to keep your passport if you get another citizenship. So... We have something called OCI. So it's like a document which allows me to go back to India freely without a visa and live there, work there, etc. But I'm not officially a citizen, so I can't vote and serve in the government, for example. Gotcha. Okay. And Morgan, how about you? I'm born and raised in Mississauga. Uh, I'm the son of American uh, immigrants. My parents were born and raised and grew up in Chicago. Uh, Their parents all grew up in Chicago, and then their parents were from points across the South. So our roots run very, 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 very deep in the U.S., but I was born and raised in uh, Mississauga. And you went to university in the States, is that right? 
Yeah, I went to Northwestern University right outside Chicago, and I was there at the height of the Jerry Springer era, <laughs> which is to say what I thought I was going to see last night turns out is what you guys all saw, but I had seen it all before in the 90s at Jerry Springer, so I didn't need to watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should point out you're the only person among uh, the five of us here who did not watch the debate last night. So that's, uh, that's two hours of your life that you won't need to have back. Good for you. You ultimately made the right decision, I think. Uh, but, I, but I should follow up in all seriousness, Morgan, on um, given your deep roots in the States, uh, why'd you come back to Canada after graduating from university? Work. Um, I was in the, the, the journalism industry. Uh, I had interned at the Detroit News for a while. I had a job at this website in Boston. Um, and then the Toronto Star was hiring for this year-long internship program. So it was the best way for me to work in a big city as a young journalist. So that was what I did. And I wound up sticking around at the Star for uh, almost 20 years. Um, you know, finished up at the Star last December. And now I'm uh, writing a book and doing some other stuff. Got it. Partha, uh, you've been in Canada uh, away from the United States for how long did you say? Was it eight years? No, it's been 10 years. 10 years. Yeah. Okay. How, in your view, have you seen the country you used to live in, the United States, where you have citizenship? How have you, in your view, seen it change over the intervening decade? I think it's changed immeasurably, right? So if you just think about it, I left the U.S. when you had a liberal president in Obama and you had Stephen Harper as the prime minister of Canada. And so obviously things have changed as Canada has moved to uh, a more progressive uh, leadership here with uh, Trudeau and the liberals. And obviously, uh, to reuse a word you just uh, you know, used at the beginning, uh, we all saw the shit show which happened in 2016 and the four years since then. So uh, it's very interesting. You know, I think Trump is both, a, there's like a self-fulfilling positive reinforcement here. I don't think Trump is responsible for all of America's ills. I think Trump is more representative of those ills, but he certainly feeds them. And therefore, in some sense, you've seen this, uh, let's say, normalizing of, let's say, bigotry and hate, uh, especially race-based hate and so on and so forth. And so, you know, I find many things in my former country and the country I still hold a passport of, you know, un frankly, unrecognizable. And you, of course, could go back should a job or anything else want to take you back oh, because I you do have citizenship. Can you imagine going I back right now? Actually, uh it, it could happen. I mean, I, do, I don't foresee it happening in the short term simply because, you know, I, I'm very happy at the University of Toronto and I love Toronto and I love Canada. But our son is in the final year of high school and he will be applying to universities both in the U.S. and Canada. So and he's our only child. So uh, assuming, let's say he goes to the U.S. for university and he stays on there, I could foresee myself uh, and ourselves going back. But then again, um, you know, if he's let's say, for example, if he works and lives in the northeast, we are close enough, so I don't think we need to move. So, yeah, potentially, yes. But uh, if the U.S. continues down the path it's going down, I'm not sure, sure we want to go back. So. so you're standing by and standing down for now, if I can pluck a line from last night. <laughs> yeah, but please don't call me a proud boy. <laughs> okay, gotcha. <laughs> Uh, well, you know what? I, I think everybody's actually champing at the bit to talk about what happened last night. And I know that there are people watching us right now who sort of expect us to talk about it. So so let's go there. Uh, Danielle, you did watch the debate last night. Uh, what was your takeaway from it? Well, you know, I was thinking about it this morning and, you know, it was sort of interesting because my, my impression is that it was a bit of a, the whole tableau was sort of a 
an allegory for what our choices are as voters right now. It's pure chaos, a bully, a, a person who only cares about himself and someone who is trying to bring some order and leadership to a situation that's, you know, turned pretty, pretty difficult. So, um, that, you know, it was, I've used, you know, a lot of people have used different ways to describe it. It, it certainly was chaos. And I don't think, you know, Interestingly, Trump is behind right now in the polls, and what he needs is to persuade people that he has a plan and that he is going to be a leader and a president. And I don't think he convinced anybody last night of that. So from my perspective, even though, you know, we didn't have an opportunity to hear a lot about what, you know, Vice President Biden's plans are, anyone who is watching, you know, I think you'd have to say that he came out ahead. Now, you're from Missouri originally, so uh, a red state. If you were living in Missouri today, how would you vote in the election in November? Oh, I would. I'm, I already have voted. Actually, I voted by mail. That that scary, dangerous process. <laughs> um, yeah, you I forgot to say fraudulent, dangerous, oh, well, scary, because, and fraudulent. You know, I think that one of the things that actually I feel hopeful about is that you know overseas voters have been voting by mail for years and years and years. Military voters have been voting by mail for years, and it's never been an issue until now. And that's how we know that you know these this fear mongering is really baseless and. You know, frankly, I already have voted. I voted for Biden-Harris. I'm excited to see them take this country in another direction. And I hope that, you know, anyone who hasn't voted yet will will be motivated to do so. It's really easy if you're overseas. You can go to votefromabroad.org and get your ballot. Hmm. Uh, we have a graphic across the bottom of the screen. In that shot, I can see now that you're wearing a Biden-Harris button. But in the previous shot, which was just a single on you, it obscured the button, so I couldn't tell. But now I can see quite clearly that you're a Biden-Harris supporter. So, okay, fine. Uh, Kevin, how about you? If you were living in New York, let me guess. Uh, if you were living in New York City right now, who would you be voting for? Um, I mean, obviously, uh, Biden-Harris is is my choice for uh, for president and vice president, although New Yorkers do have the unique ability to support a third party uh, in, in somewhat limited numbers without worrying about whether they're going to throw off the election. Uh, and so you have the option to vote third party if, if that's uh, if that's what you choose without really having to, to worry about the chaos that ensues. But honestly, I think last night... Um, the, the purpose, I think, and Trump's tactics are actually to persuade undecided voters not to vote. I think it's been pretty well established that um, in the case of low voter turnout, the, the Republicans could win uh, because of gerrymandering, because of voter suppression. And if there is a low voter turnout, I, I think it is. Uh, a, and if that is ensured by sort of the, um, the people's distaste in the conduct of the debates, then, uh, then that could actually ensure a Trump victory. Kevin, what did you learn last night? Um, I mean, I think that the only person that really talked about policy substantially was uh, was Chris Wallace. Uh, I mean, he was the only person that really talked about uh, Biden's climate plan. And that's really the only dose of policy discussion we got last night at all. Um, and, uh, and, and so otherwise, though, I think, um, I mean, convincing people not to vote is the only thing that Trump has. And I think that we really ought to be focused on how can we craft a get out the vote uh, campaign that addresses the people's sort of de, uh, desire to stay home? Partha, you watched the debate. What did you think? Um, I'd like to summarize this debate by uh, a, a sort of cartoon somebody forwarded me. Actually, it was a tweet by Trevor Noah, which says, now we know why kindergarten teachers in the U.S. are the most underpaid, because that's what I watched. I watched a kindergarten fight, right? 
but but I was very happy with the way Biden handled it because if he had just stood by and let Trump get away with whatever he was trying to do, people would have come after Biden saying that see this guy can't handle it and you know he he hasn't uh, he doesn't have the gumption to face Trump. So I think uh, unfortunately the debate uh, did descend to the level that it did. But I'm I'm happy that you know uh, Biden went down to the trenches. As far as the debate was concerned, I think it was awful, and uh, you know I felt like changing the channel in five minutes. And the reason, the only reason I didn't was this sort of uh, combination of this masochism that you know you do things even though they are painful to yourself, and also the sense that I knew this is really important, and so I just wanted to watch the end of it. But what I couldn't watch was I couldn't watch the debates on CNN and Fox for more than five minutes. I just switched to TSN after that because there's only a limit to how much you can take. So as far as the debate is concerned, um, I agree with the the points about turnout. See, the strange thing about the U.S. Uh, election system is only the votes in like six or seven states count. So I make a point. I have my ballot right here. You know, this hmm. is the New York State ballot, which I printed out, and I'm, I intend to obviously vote for Biden, Harris, and send back. And so so does my wife. Uh, but our votes don't count. It's purely symbolic because we know New York's a blue state. Similarly, if you're from a deep red state, your vote doesn't count. It's those six or seven, you know, crucial swing states, and that's everybody's attention, like the Ohio's, the Michigan's, the Pennsylvania's, the Florida's, and so on and so forth. But that's the strange system that the U.S. has with the combination of, like, you know, uh, it's it's two things. It's the electoral college and the fact that most states are winner take all. So even with the electoral college, if states were awarding their electors proportionally, you wouldn't have this apathy uh, for the vast majority of the country. And, you know, you'd actually have a functional democracy, but, you know, but we don't. Just to clarify, I mean, your vote obviously counts, but what you're saying is that you know know four years ahead of Election Day that New York is going to go blue. You know California is going to go blue. There's only a small handful of battleground states which are actually, quote unquote, in play. That's what you mean, yes? Absolutely. The Electoral College votes for New York, for California, and similarly for, let's say, Mississippi or Alabama, they're locked in. So a handful of people uh, voting one way or the other really doesn't matter. Uh, it's the, but a handful of people who do vote or don't vote or stay away from voting in places like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, and a few other states, mm-hmm. you know, they determine the outcome of the entire election and therefore they determine things like who gets to sit in the Supreme Court and so on and so forth. Right. Morgan, uh, I do have to say, you know, tens of millions of people did watch that debate last night and maybe some of them tuned in to hear about the issues. But I'm betting a bunch tuned in just to see the train wreck that they knew would take place. Why did you not feel any obligation to sort of watch that thing last night? <laughs> Why do I feel an obligation to watch a train wreck? Like you guys should all have to, I shouldn't have to explain to you why I didn't watch something again, whose outcome outcome was determined. Like, you know, Donald Trump does not have a lot to to sell in terms of policy, in terms of his accomplishments. So all he's going to do is make this thing as uh, sensational as possible. And so I'm a guy, I have a lot to do. Right, I got an 18 year old, 18 month old daughter. You might hear her crying in the background. I'm trying to write a book. My time is, very compressed. I got to wake up at probably quarter to four every morning to get every work any work done. So then I don't have 90 minutes at nighttime to watch something that I already know how it's going to turn out. Um, and to Kevin's point, Trump's only hope is to make the debates so pointless that anyone who is undecided doesn't vote. Because the truth is, anyone who, after four years of Donald Trump, one month and one week out from the election, who is still waiting for Donald Trump to do or say the one thing that will convince them to vote for Donald Trump already wants to vote for Donald Trump. 
So there are the, the, the number of actual undecided voters is even smaller than I think what we're talking about. So there, there was not anything in the debate for me. There was nothing for me to learn. Are you uh, registered to vote in the United States? I got my ballot right here. I'm about to fill it out after we get off this um, call. OK, what state are you registered in? Massachusetts, because that's the last state I lived. So once again, that is about the bluest of blue states in the United States. So, you know, again, we don't want to say your vote doesn't count, but you already know that that state's going to go Biden-Harris. Does that take any joy out of the election for you? Um, to an extent, yes, because basically every vote, every vote after the deciding vote doesn't count. So if there's, if there's a million voters, 500,001 vote for one candidate. Um, after that 500,001, it could be 200,000 more voters vote for that one candidate, but their votes don't count because as we've discussed, it's winner take all. And all you gotta do is one, win by one vote, which is why Trump's you know claims of voter fraud in California um, fall so flat because if you are trying to rig an election, you're trying to win by two or three votes in, in Alabama or South Carolina. You're not trying to win by three million votes in California because those extra votes don't get you anything. Hmm. Now, let me say for the record at this point that uh, I've asked all four of you how you either have or intend to vote, and you've all four said you either have or would vote for the Democratic ticket. And the producer of this segment, uh, I, I, want to, I want to go to bat for her because she tried like H-E double hockey sticks to find some Republicans in Canada who were prepared to go on the air and defend a vote for Trump and could not. Now that's not as shocking as it sounds because we know polls have been done here in Canada on how would you vote if you did have a vote in the U.S. election. And we know that the surveys say anything from 85 to 90% of, the, 90 of the people would vote for the Democratic ticket as opposed to the Republican ticket. But I wanna put that on the record right now because uh, obviously we have, we have four guests today who are very reflective of the Canadian scene, but we don't have two Republicans and two Democrats as we might normally have on a discussion for that reason. So I put that out there for uh, people's edification for what it's worth. Uh, I want to know this, Danielle, if, I mean, right now things look not bad for the Democratic ticket, but of course there's still more than a month to go and we know that things can change and the polls are a reflection of what people thought yesterday, not, not a reflection of what they're going to do in, uh, you know, in uh, four or five weeks. So my question is, if, if Trump wins re-election, what do you think? You know, there was an interesting piece today in the New York Times. It was an op-ed about how what we're voting on right now is basically the future of American democracy. And in my view, if Trump wins, we are basically sealing the fate that that democracy will no longer hold. And, you know, I think that's it sounds dramatic, but I can tell you that when 2016 was happening and people were saying that they didn't think it was possible for Trump to win. I was in Milwaukee canvassing and helping voters vote because the voter ID laws in Milwaukee and in Wisconsin are terrible and meant to keep people from voting. And it was devastating um, because people didn't appreciate the choice they were making then. And I think it would be even worse now because we do know we have his record. We know what's happened in the past four years and the choice is clear and we know he can win. So, you know, from my perspective, it is possible for him to win. But um, I don't like to imagine that reality because I think that 
like I said, I think democracy in the United States will collapse as we know it. Um, I think it's important, though, to point out that the, the presidential office is not the only one on the ballot right now. And, um, you know, we've seen a lot right now about the Supreme Court nomination coming up. And, you know, American voters will be voting also on a lot of Senate races. And the senators also have a huge influence in how, what laws we pass, who's held accountable. I mean, I think we can see right now Mitch McConnell is not holding President Trump accountable. The senator, the Republican senators are not holding President Trump accountable. And that's a huge part of the way that the American system is supposed to work. There's supposed to be a check on that power and it's not functioning. So, you know, that also will be a big, that's an important factor in what happens next and how the, how those down ballot races turn out. And, you know, there's a lot of battleground states and there are a lot of offices right now where people's, people aren't sitting too comfortable. So, you know, there, I don't think any, anything is certain. Kevin, same question to you. If Trump wins, what? I I believe that that there is guaranteed to be a certain amount of violence in the streets following election day. It's heartbreaking as an American to see my home country and and see uh, that there. I believe that there is going to be some kind of armed conflict um, during this period of uncertainty about the actual ballot count. You're saying regardless um, of who wins. I, regardless of who wins, yes, because it seems almost almost guaranteed that because of um, because of when the mail-in ballot count begins, there is going to be some amount of uncertainty in at least a couple of states, I believe, and a sort of form of Bush v. Gore, I believe, will play out again. Uh, I think it's almost guaranteed that Trump will try to use litigation and sue possibly all fifty states over over their uh, election results. So um, I think no matter what happens, yes, there is guaranteed to be some amount of violence in the streets. Uh, if Trump uh, is ultimately found to be the victor, personally, I don't see that as as a totally unexpected outcome. Uh, again, just because of gerrymandering, voter suppression laws, and people's general disinterest, I think. And I feel like that there are definitely voters out there who have a very difficult time distinguishing uh, between the two, I know that it sounds preposterous, but again, I've been to 48 U.S. states, and and I can tell that um, that if there is uh, one kind of white guy in his 70s, another white guy in his 70s, and their policies are not radically different in the same way that um, you know somebody like uh, like Bernie Sanders might have brought, uh, then I think a lot of people are are actually just not going to vote. And to me, I think that's actually the the greatest risk of this election. Partha, how about you on that question? See, um, I think it's quite likely that Trump will win, although the indicators suggest that he probably will not. But uh, as the last panelist basically said, Trump has basically thrown the whole thing into like uh, turmoil by saying that, like, you know, there's so much fraud in this. And uh, the the fact that the, the postal ballots will take some time to count is going to add to that confusion. Now, obviously, all of us were overconfident that uh, Hillary Clinton was going to win in 2016. So it's important not to discount the real possibility that Trump might actually win. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind here is, right, there is a big difference between voters on the left and voters on the right. Voters on the right are extremely pragmatic. They are willing to overlook, uh, for example, the evangelical vote and stuff. They're able to overlook all aspects of Trump's personal life as long as he delivers a conservative majority in the Supreme Court, right? And this uh, recent unfortunate passing of RBG, it's unclear how it's going to affect the election. It might energize people on the left, but it might also energize people on the right because Trump has delivered a conservative Supreme Court. And Trump, uh, unless he changes the law and declares himself like, you know, president for life and stuff, which 
by the way, uh, I can't completely rule out, uh, he, his term is going to end in four years' time, worst case, right? But the Supreme Court people, especially, you know, you appoint somebody who's in their 40s and stuff, these people stay for like three or four generations, right? So the voters on the right are extremely pragmatic and they vote for goals and aims. The left, on the other hand, always is, you know, trying to find flaws with its own candidates. Like Biden is not progressive enough. And Trump tried that yesterday, right? He tried to pin the, uh, oh, you don't have support the new, uh, the Green New Deal and stuff. And Biden was a little weak there. He said, no, 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 I don't support it. I support my, my, uh, you know, my plan for the environment and so on and so forth. So I think the problem is people on the left or uh, centrists or progressives, moderates, whatever, they also need to develop a sense of, you know, expediency. Don't vote for the perfect candidate. Vote for the better candidate of the two you have. So, you know, if you have two middle-aged, not middle-aged, 70, 70 plus old white men, vote for the 70 plus old white man who will do the right thing. <laughs> Brian right? Mulroney always so, used to say, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, Morgan, uh, talk to me about this for a second. One of the things or I guess it's part of conventional wisdom in the United States today, is that some people are actually um, a little afraid, maybe a little embarrassed, to acknowledge to pollsters that they support Trump. And therefore, uh, his support, so goes the argument, is understated in current polling. Do you buy that? No. So um, what we see is what we get, eh? I think what we see is what we get. And think about this. We get polls mixed up with the outcome of the election, and Trump won the election, and the Electoral College is not in the popular vote. So the polls didn't tell us last time out that Hillary Clinton would win the election. They told us that Hillary would get more votes, and Hillary Clinton did get more votes. She got a lot more votes in spite of uh, a really thorough and wide-ranging campaign of voter suppression, disinformation, all these different techniques that Trump and his uh, allies from Russia uh, used to keep black people from voting, brown people from voting, Asian people from voting, uh, et cetera. And so what I think this time around is that there are fewer Trump voters than ever. Like right now he is down to like his base. It's, it's amazing that this base is still, you know, 35% of the population, but I don't buy for a second that there's this silent majority of Trump voters. Like, I think what we're going to see, regardless of who wins the electoral college and regardless of all this, uh, all these new, um, techniques and this re this renewed effort to suppress folks and stop people from voting by mail and get rid of uh, mail-in ballots. I think what we're going to see in, in November, either way, regardless of who wins the Electoral College, is Joe Biden getting a lot more votes than Donald Trump. Hmm. Okay. I would like to pivot in our conversation right now. And Morgan, while you have the floor, I'll start with you. Uh, this is, we happen to be living at a moment of um, well, historic racial reckoning in North America, but particularly in the United States. Um, I, I guess you could start this most recent chapter of America's racial reckoning with the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. I guess it was four months ago. And Morgan, I wonder if there's a part of you that wishes you were in the United States right now, uh, fighting, working, championing, trying to make something happen on that issue right now. Um, sort of. Uh, because like for me, I never really see, I don't see the border as like a wall and there is no wall, despite what Donald Trump said he was going to do. I see it more as a, 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 a membrane, a semi-permeable membrane. And I go back and forth. Um, so I like my 
consciousness, my identity is there's not like this clean cleaving between my American half and my Canadian half. I am American, and I am Canadian. Um, so right now, I I do feel a bit of like survivor's remorse for being here and relatively safe when I have family um, in Chicago and family in Grand Rapids and family across the U.S. Um, but like. Like if you're asking me, what would I give up my house, my my family, my everything I have, to go fight in the street? Uh, no, I, I I don't know that that's a fair question to ask somebody. But I will tell you this: um, is that my parents left the United States when the country was undergoing upheaval similar to what we see today. They left in 1969, and it was they were just like Kevin, very similar to Kevin. Um, they looked for reasons to continue to have faith in the United States and continue to have faith that white people in the United States would wake up and do better by their fellow citizens. And then they killed Martin Luther King. And and listen, when I tell you, like, Martin Luther King was the second last straw. And then they elected Richard Nixon. So my parents said, you know what, what are we, what are we staying here for? Um, And so, and I told you this last time I was here, Steve, what, like, the United States is rapidly turning into one of these countries that people leave to come to the United States or come to Canada. Like it has all the hallmarks. You have a ruler that's trying to install himself as a ruler for life with these autocratic leanings. You have violent repression of ethnic minorities. You have ethnic minorities having their democratic rights stripped from them or 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 or, or otherwise suppressed. These are the factors that drive people to the US. These are the factors that drive people to Canada and it's happening in the US. And so do I wish I was there right now fighting? Sort of, but at the same time, like a lot of my family is here and I can't risk my life when I got a little baby daughter at home. That doesn't make sense. And so I don't know if that answers your question, but no, no, it, I'm not gonna it, give up what I have right now. To- it sure does. I totally understand where you're coming from. And, and with a couple of minutes left to go in our discussion, uh, Danielle, let me put the same question to you. Is there a part of you that wishes you were carrying a placard in the streets of St. Louis these days uh, fighting for racial uh, equality and social justice. Yeah, actually there is. I mean, I think it's, you know, Morgan has made a good point and he and I are in different situations. Like the feeling that I feel is not necessarily that I would want to relocate back there, but that if it weren't COVID times, that I would like the opportunity to travel back there and stand in solidarity with the people who are in the streets there and, you know, use my position of privilege to support them. Like, I think that being from that area, having my family has, you know, my father grew up, you know, in the next neighborhood over from Ferguson. Like I, you know, we have, we have friends who, you know, tell us like they can't come visit us from, from those neighborhoods because they'll get pulled over by the cops because they're black and they're going to a white neighborhood. Like that reality is a reality that I can't tolerate. And if I, you know, it just, I appreciate that I have an an opportunity and a responsibility in some respects to, to support this movement, and I wish I could be there for that. Um, you know, I do what I can here, but it's not the same. Understood. I've got a minute left. Partha, I should give it to you to weigh in on the same issue. See, I personally have to say that, you know, uh, living in the U.S. As a, and now in Canada as a brown person, I personally haven't experienced, or at least I don't think I've experienced racism. Your producer asked me about this, and so I lived in Boston and New York. I experienced a lot of rudeness, okay? Those cities are known for being notoriously rude. I love both cities, by the way. I'm still a Red Sox fan, and uh, Steve, I think we've talked about this. Uh, uh, however, 
I noticed that people are just being rude to everyone. So it's just a New York or Boston <laughs> thing. They weren't being selectively rude to me because I'm Asian or Indian or whatever. So, but one thing I want to say is, you know, there's a sense of uh, almost self-congratulatory attitude amongst Canadians saying that, hey, we are not American. Okay, and I see the same thing for people from other countries. But there's lots of bad stuff happening all over the world, including in Canada. So rather than being self-congratulatory about what's wrong in the U.S., right? I think it's important that we kind of shine a lens or a, take a mirror to ourselves and try to fix those same kind of problems at home. So I still remember when the Black Lives Matter uh, movement in 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 Canada interrupted the you know the Pride Parade like three or four years ago. They were criticized. But then as things have come out, you see that there's problems in policing in Canada as well. Maybe it's not as extreme as the U.S. because this is a more sort of moderate country. But it's important that as Canadians, we use the U.S. as a warning of what we can become if we are not careful and, you know, take steps to fix things. I think rather than constantly uh, bitch and moan about how bad the U.S. is. Yeah, Canadian smugness is not one of our better qualities, so I appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, Danielle, Kevin, Partha, Morgan, it's awfully good of all four of you to join us on TVO tonight. And uh, stay safe out there. And I'd, I'd kind of like to hang out with the four of you on November 3rd just to watch you watch election night. But we'll see how that all goes. Take good care, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is brought to you by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Ontario. CPA Ontario is a regulator, an educator, a thought leader, and an advocate. We protect the public. We advance our profession. We guide our CPAs. We are CPA Ontario. And by viewers like you. Thank you.